Well, we're glad you're here with us today. Open your Bibles, if you would, please, to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5. Today we come to the final message in this fifth chapter, and we've been really, really a long time getting to this point. Chapter 5 is one of the most important chapters that we find in all of the Scriptures. And these last few verses that we've been considering for these previous three weeks and four weeks now are some of the most important that we find in this chapter. We've spent 30 weeks in chapter 5, and each message that I, I do think is important, but the messages that I want to bring, the message I want to bring today in the last few verses and the ones we've been considering here are really the pinnacle of this chapter. These are particularly important because Jesus draws a line in the sand, and he says, if you're on this side of the line, you are not in my kingdom. And he says, if you're on the other side of this line and you have the characteristics that I've described here, then you are fit for the kingdom of God. And it's important for us to understand that Jesus did not give a formula. There wasn't a set of rules that he was giving to people for entrance into the kingdom because these qualities and characteristics of kingdom citizens do not arise out of any efforts of the human heart. The Bible teaches that our heart is depraved, is exceedingly wicked, And there is nothing righteous that arises from the natural human heart. The only way that a person can actually possess the qualities that we read about here is out of a heart that has been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. This is a heart that has received the righteousness that exceeds all of the righteousness that's known to man and certainly that righteousness that exceeds the self-righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. And it exceeded all of their acts of piety. And be sure of this, if good works could save a person, then these scribes and Pharisees would have been the first ones to ever get into the kingdom of God. They claimed that they were believers in God. And there was a saying that said that if two people were going to get into heaven, one was a scribe and one was the Pharisee. And so when Jesus came along preaching that you had to have righteousness that was greater than theirs, and a righteousness is different that makes a person fit for heaven, then the people were confused about that and they were plunged into despair because they looked at their religious leaders and how holy they thought they were and they thought if those people cannot get into heaven, then who can? And that is exactly where Jesus wanted them to be. He wanted them to be in despair over this thing of righteousness. And so he brought out six examples of pharisaical misinterpretations of God's law, and he showed them the correct interpretations. And in all six of those examples, he showed how far short that they, the people, had fallen from God's standard. And not only that, it also showed most clearly and convincingly how the scribes and Pharisees had also missed that mark. And so, yes, this was intended to drive them to despair. And it was intended to show them that there is no hope for the perfection that God requires without God's help. They must find their righteousness in another. And the other person is the Lord Jesus Christ, the master teacher. And so we've been looking in these previous three messages at the last of the six examples that Jesus gave... And this demonstrated the wickedness of their hearts. And today we're going to finish the chapter. We're going to review some of the things that we've been over. And then we're going to make some concluding remarks about God's exceedingly high standard. So if you'd stand with me, please. We're in Matthew chapter 5. And I want to read uh, verses 43 through 48 as our text verses today. 
Jesus says, Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that ye may be children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh his Son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. For if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same? And if ye salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans so? Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word, and we thank you for those who have come to hear today. And we ask you, Lord, that you would bless the message and that we might have understanding about really the love of God and this righteousness that exceeds anything that we own. And we thank you most of all for Jesus Christ who came to give us the righteousness that God requires. Bless in this message today and we give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The last example that Jesus gave in this chapter is the most damaging of all the scribal and pharisaical teachings. The religious leaders prided themselves in their abilities to keep the Old Testament law. They even practically made a God out of Moses. And I suppose that if they had a choice of serving Jehovah God or serving Moses, they might well have taken Moses. And that was primarily based upon their wrong ideas about what Moses taught. And the truth is that while they claimed to be followers of what Moses said, they were actually following years of traditions and adding to and twisting of the Word of God. They couldn't have missed the intent of the law any more seriously than when they came down to the law's basic underlying principle. Love is the foundation of all of the commandments. First we are to love God, and then we are to love our fellow man. And Jesus said that all of the law and the prophets hang on those two commandments. And so when Jesus brought up this issue of, about loving your neighbor as yourself, nothing could have been as damaging to their system to realize that they'd actually missed the whole underlying theme of God's law. They'd never really kept the commandments at all. They had an outward form that said that they did, but their hearts was tell, were telling a far different story. Now, I want to review for just a few moments, since we've had three lessons on this particular part of Scripture. And I want to briefly mention some of the points of the message, and then we'll kind of tie things together as we end today. First, we talked about the definitions of the Jews. How did the scribes and the Pharisees deal with this Old Testament law that very clearly said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself? Well, they could read the law, and they knew it very well. In fact, the scribes had been charged with the responsibility that they were to copy down God's law. And so down through the centuries, they kept copying the law over and over and over again. And that's the reason why, that by the time of Jesus, that the law had actually survived in its pure form, exactly as Moses had given it. In fact, we still have that Word of God today, because those scribes were so faithful in copying down the Scriptures. And so they had read this, and they'd copied it down hundreds of times before. And so they knew the command that the Old Testament gave, that you are to love your neighbor as yourself. But the trick, you might say, of the old rabbis was to change the meaning of the words. Neighbor was a very restricted word in their definition, and to them it meant a Jew. It meant someone who was of their nationality. 
And over the course of hundreds of years of that type of misinterpretation, neighbor became to be an even more restricted word by the time that Jesus came along. And so the Pharisees had changed this from not just a Jew and not just someone who is of my nationality, but they had changed it to be someone who I like, someone who is like me, someone who agrees with me. That's really my neighbor. And then the idea of loving your neighbor as yourself and following that command as it was originally intended was further obscured by their misunderstanding of certain Old Testament passages. And so there were then the difficulties that are found in the Old Testament. There are certain passages in the Old Testament that deal with God's command to destroy other nations. There God says that the children of Israel were to kill their enemies. There are prayers that we find in the Psalms that are called imprecatory prayers. And that means that they're prayers for judgment against the enemies of God's people. Whenever the Jews read about the conquest of Canaan and they look back into their history, they read about what Joshua did and how God had given him a command to destroy sometimes all of the men, sometimes all of the women, sometimes all of the children, and even right down to the livestock that those people owned. And so they wondered then, how could this command that they are to love their enemies, love their neighbor as their self, how does that accord when God says to destroy enemies? How can a neighbor really be anyone and everyone? And we answered that question by pointing out that God's judgment in the Old Testament was upon nations. God is the righteous judge, and in an act of divine justice, he told the people to destroy the Canaanites, and he told those who warred, uh, told them to, to kill those people that warred against his chosen people, because what they would have done was to destroy the worship of the one true God. They would have been following idols, and so God said, you can't live with those people, you've got to get rid of them, and so God commanded them to be destroyed. But God never intended that anyone would take those commands that he's given in his justice and relate them to the activities that we have between individuals. On an individual level, the Word of God says that we are to love our enemies and we're to show kindness to them. And so we're to uh, uh, abide by those underlying principles of the second division of God's law, which says we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. Now, from that point we went on to discuss the difference in Christians. In verse number 47, Jesus asked the question, What do ye more than others? What is there about your life that's different from other people? Because if you love only those who love you, and you treat well only those who treat you well, then how are you different from anyone that really knows nothing at all about God? And Jesus gave a classic illustration of the difference by showing the real meaning of the word neighbor. And there we went over into the book of Luke and we looked at the parable that Jesus gave of the Good Samaritan. And the story that he told there was about a man who was a Samaritan, a person who was hated by the Jews, an enemy of the Jews. And this man, according to the story, was willing to give of himself in order to help one of his enemies. And the actions of that man in contradistinction to the actions of the scribes and Pharisees, showed the difference between what God meant about loving your neighbor and loving your enemy, and in fact showed them that the neighbor could very well be your worst enemy. You see, the real test of a Christian is not what you do with those who talk and look and act like you. The real test of your Christianity is what do you do when there are people that are nothing at all like you, and given half a chance that they would 
hurt you in just about any way that they could. And further than that, this person may have already done all that he could do to you. And the real test of Christianity is how do you treat him after he's done that. And if we're honest with ourselves, we, we know that we can never live up to this standard. Loving our neighbor as ourselves is way higher than we can achieve. And so we're just going to fall short of this no matter how hard that we try. Because you see, the day that you decide that you're going to take your entire paycheck and you're going to take everything that's in your closet, all of your clothes, and you're going to pull your car out of the garage and you're going to take your retirement funds and the security of all the things that you've laid up for yourself, if you're going to take all of that and hand it all over to your worst enemy then you're just getting a start on fulfilling this command. And then after you've done all of that, and your enemy still curses you, and he drags you through the mud, he grinds you into the ground, and then you see that same person in trouble and in abject desperation on the very brink of death, and you put yourself in his place, and you lose your life, saving yours. Then you're just getting close to the fulfillment of this command. And you know why? Because that is what Christ did for you. He gave up all that he had. He left his throne in glory. He stepped down after being worshipped by angels to become a man. To become a servant of men. He took our abuse and our hatred. He took the mocking and our cursing. He took thousands of years of heinous acts of man against him in the past. And knowing that there were thousands of more years of the very same thing that would occur in the future. And yet he said, I love you and I forgive you. And Jesus died on that cruel cross in our place. That's what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. Now I want to expand on that part of this just a little bit as we look into the fourth part of the message today. And this concerns the demonstration of God. God showed us how this is done. He didn't throw out an expectation and say, well, you do the best that you can with an impossible task that I've given. And he didn't say, pin all of your hopes on this command that you can't possibly keep. But instead, God demonstrated how this is done. And I might better say that he demonstrated how that he did it for us and and how that his keeping of his own command perfectly stands good for our miserable imperfection. In verse number 48... Jesus gave us the standard that must be kept. He said, Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven, which is perfect. Several weeks ago, I told you that verse number 20 of this chapter sets the tone for the six examples that Jesus gave. And in the 20th verse of the chapter, he said, For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter the kingdom of heaven. And in verse number 48, after all those examples, he sums up the righteousness that exceeds by saying, Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Your heavenly Father is perfect in his love. Among all the other things that God is perfect in, how he is consistently and thoroughly perfect, your heavenly Father is perfect in his love. And in verse number 45, Jesus said, that you are going to have to love in that very same way if you are children or going to be children of your Father. So if you're going to be children of God, you've got to have the Father's love. Now, I want to sum this up today by looking at the Father's love. There's a passage that's written in Romans that we're all familiar with, and we read it just a few minutes ago. And I want to use 
some verses there as an anchor for our discussion today about God's love. Paul wrote this in Romans 5, verses 6 through 8. For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's been very well remarked that whenever you read about the love of God in Scripture, that it's always connected to the cross. It's the death of Jesus Christ on the cross that is the basis for God's love. That's the basis for all of God's dealings with man. And if you ever take away the cross and you believe that you still have some connection or some claim upon God's love, then you simply do not have the God of the Bible. The pluralism of today's society says that we don't need to approach God on the basis of the cross. It's not necessary to believe in those uh, exclusive claims of Christianity because God loves all. It doesn't really make any difference what you believe. God loves everybody, and all paths are equal paths to God. And I've remarked on several occasions that that statement falls underneath its own weight. Because Christ, who is Christianity, claimed that there are no other paths to God. He said that you can't come to the Father except by Him. And if there is some other way to the Father than what Jesus says, then that makes Jesus a liar, and therefore He is no path to God. And so therefore, all paths are equal paths, mean that Christianity can't be a path at all. It can't be one of the paths to God. But rather than go further into that explanation, we want to take the Bible's very clear teachings about this and see how that God's love is demonstrated by the cross. Demonstrated by this willing sacrifice of Christ when we were in an inexplicable, horrible condition of our sin, totally abject failures, exceedingly deplorable was our condition. And yet the Bible says that God loves us. Now, let me show you three things today about God's love that demonstrate that even keeps his own law. First of all, God loves despite our nature. There's a very common misunderstanding of human nature that basically says that all people are good. All of us deep inside have this built-in reflex that when we're pressed to it, we will do what is right. And it's that innate goodness that's in man that really needs to be trained a little bit. It needs to be exercised some. It needs to be taught just a little bit. And then eventually the goodness of man will shine through. Anne Frank, who was that little Jewish girl who lived during the days of the Holocaust of World War II, maintained a diary while she was living in Amsterdam. And she was a victim, of course, of Hitler's Third Reich. After the war, and she and her family had been killed, they found her diary... And we're all familiar with that. And she made this statement. I still believe, in spite of everything, that people are really good at heart. And Anne Frank was wrong about that because the Scriptures teach there is no one who is good in their heart. And if we've learned anything at all about Matthew chapter 5, surely we have learned this, that Jesus' teachings prove here beyond doubt that there is no person who's good in his heart. If you go back to the Beatitudes and you read that one about peace, when Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, the reason that we have no lasting peace upon this earth is because man is not good at his heart. His nature is that he is wicked, and that sets man against man, and even worse than that, it sets man against God. 
And according to Romans chapter 5, among many other scriptures that we have in the Bible, the Bible teaches that a man is a sinner in his nature. He is the enemy of God. And we can't be the enemies of God and at the same time love our neighbor. And if man is not the enemy of God, and if it's not his nature to be against God and against Christ, then the cross of Christ was of no, no good. It was useless. Because Christ doesn't need to die for people that are already good. What is the cross of Christ for if basically this is true, that everybody really is good at their heart? Well, folks, the very fact that there was a cross, the very fact that Christ had to die is proof enough that man is not good in his nature. Romans 5, verse number 8 says that we were sinners. And if we were sinners, that means that we're God's enemies because sin defies God's holy nature. And what God is doing right now is he is about the business of destroying sin and purging his creation of it. Because God is not going to forever exist with sin. But God's love is shown to us in that he is born with us in our sin. The scripture says that God is long-suffering in the face of our sin. And he has determined that those who are his enemies may be reconciled to him. And so in spite of our nature, God was willing to do something with sin. And he demonstrated his love by sending Christ to die for us. Paul further proved what we are by nature by stating in verses in verse number 6 of Romans chapter 5, For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. We were ungodly. And that means that we were unlike God. And so whatever is unlike God, by necessity, falls short of his perfection. And yet Jesus said in verse number 48, If you're going to be saved, if you're going to be in the kingdom of heaven, you must be perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect. In verse number 7, he said, For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. And the contrast that he's trying to make is, is obvious. If a man is righteous, it would be difficult for someone to give his life for him. It'd be difficult to give your life for a righteous man. If a man is good, it'd also be hard to give your life for him. But what if that man is vile? And what if he's wicked? What if he hates you? And what if he's a murderer? He's a thief and he's an adulterer. He is a liar. Then what do you do then? And that was our condition. But God demonstrated his love by dying for us, not when we were righteous and good, but when we were his enemies of the worst sort. And you see here how Matthew 5 is demonstrated by God. He says there, love your enemies, and that is exactly what God did. He said, bless them that curse you, and that is exactly what God did. He said, pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, and that is exactly what God did. Because there was Christ hanging on that cross, suffering for the sins of man. And what did he say? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And here in these examples, Jesus shows that we are murderers because he has defined hatred and anger as murder. He says you are adulterers because he has described our lust as adultery. He says that you are liars because he's described even the smallest promise that we don't keep as breaking his law, which makes us liars. And yet... In our nature, despite everything that we were in nature, God loved us and he was willing to send Christ to die for us. But let's go further than that because it's not just our nature. God loves despite our choice. You're a sinner not only in your nature, but you're a sinner by choice. And if you were a sinner just by your nature, then you would say, well, it's Adam's fault. 
Adam made me what I am. Adam made me the way I am. So I'm condemned because of what Adam did. And I would have done something differently than Adam did. But you know that you're not condemned for Adam's sin? You're not condemned because Adam ate of the tree. You're condemned because you have chosen to sin. And you might well blame the devil for this. And some people do. Well, the devil made me do it. I'm afraid to give the devil too much credit. Because when you sin, you do it because you want to do it. Nobody holds a head, a gun to your head and says, do this or else. You don't curse and lie and get angry at people because you're forced to do that. You do it because it's what you want to do. You will not choose Christ over sin simply because you don't want to. And so man is not a sinner by compulsion. He is a sinner by choice. And think about that for just a minute. God loved us enough to send Christ into the world when we would not choose him. You see, we looked at who God is, and we considered all that we receive as God at God's hand. And Jesus said that God is even benevolent enough that he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. And there's just proof again that he keeps his own command. So we breathe his air, we eat his food, we accept all the provision that God gives, we see the sacrifice that Christ made, But when it comes down to this, will I choose God by trusting Him and doing His will, or will I choose to do what I want to do and I will sin despite God's providence? What do we do? A man's choice is always to disobey God. Our choice is not to obey Him and to run after Him, but our choice is against Him. And friends, there is not one who chooses for Him. Unless God takes that evil, obstinate heart of unbelief away. And all of this is true. And despite our choice, God still loved us and he sent Christ to die for us. You see, if it ever came down to this, that God chooses for you, and the devil chooses against you, and the deciding factor is what you choose, then you're in big trouble. Because what you chose is wrong, what you choose is wrong, and what you will always choose is is wrong. And God knows that. And yet God sent Christ to die anyway. So we're sinners by choice. We have rejected Christ, and yet Christ died for us. And then thirdly, God loves despite our nature. He loves despite our choice. And also God loves despite our practice. We are sinners by nature, by choice, and practice. And God knows that you're a sinner by practice. I mean, you didn't accidentally stumble into all of this. We are actively against Christ. And there are some people who fancy themselves to be much better than that, and they resist any such language to say, well, you are actively against Christ. Now, let me leave the atheists and agnostics alone for just a minute, because they don't deny that they're actively against Christ. They don't care that they are. Let's talk about religious people for just a minute. Let's talk about churchgoers, and let's talk about good moral people, because they certainly do resist any kind of statements that when the preacher gets up and says, you are actively against Christ in your practice. But we've refined our practice, haven't we? Many people who call themselves Christians have good practices. I mean, they go to church. Their practice is to say the rosary. Their practice is to cross themselves when things are going well and sometimes when things are going bad. Their practice is that they will show up for communion. In some places, they will wear the proper clothing, and they will have the right kind of a haircut. The other day, I received a magazine from one church ministry that had a special order house from which you could order clothing 
so that you could look like them and you can meet their standard. There's a lot of good practices out there, so we think. But I want you to think here about the context of Jesus' statement in Matthew chapter 5. Because when he spoke to these people, every bit of what I just said was there. The form, the function, the rituals, the clothes, the tithing, the sacrifices. These people had done all of that. Their religion was centered in all of those things. That's exactly what they did. They did it all. And yet it's these very same people that Jesus spoke to in the book of Mark. And he said, Well hath Isaiah prophesied of you hypocrites, as it is written, the people honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Howbeit in vain do they teach, do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. Nobody's more religious than these scribes and Pharisees, and yet they were practicing sin. And so the best of the best are still sinners. And God looked down from heaven and he saw all of this evil. He saw the seedy nightclubs and he saw the prostitution and he saw the rapists and the murderers and he saw the child molesters and he saw all of the homosexuals. But he also saw the self-righteous and he saw the phony religionists and he saw people who were practicing religion in all these different ways with the form and the function, all the rituals. He saw all of that. And yet he sent Christ to die. And all of us were in the very same boat. The preacher, the song leader, deacons, especially the deacons, Sunday school teacher, pianist, all of us were in the very same boat. We were sinners against God. We didn't love God. And yet God sent Christ to die for us anyway. Now you see, the demonstration of God's love was abundantly displayed in Christ. Jesus said, when you have seen me... You have seen the Father. And so when he went to the cross to die for sin, he upheld his own law. He said, love your enemies as yourself. The Father loved the Son, and Jesus loved the Father, and the Father gave his Son to die for us. And so what did they do? They upheld both underlying principles of the law, love God and love your neighbor. So Jesus says, be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Now, could you make a summation to all the examples that Jesus has given in any more of a crushing way? Time after time, six times, Jesus delivers a crushing blow to all of their hopes and dreams. They're on their way to heaven, so they think. They've kept their beloved Mosaic law in every detail, or so they think. They're holy and righteous enough to live in God's kingdom, or so they think. And then Jesus pulled out those six examples, and he well could have pulled out a thousand more to show them that they weren't holy and righteous. And so he kept crushing all of their hopes and destroying not only their prized teachers, but also every individual personally. But instead of keeping that whip to their back and bringing out all the examples of their failures and many, many more that he could have, Jesus just simply pulverized them completely with his last statement. You must be perfect, even as your Father, which is in heaven, is perfect. And there we find the righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. The righteousness that exceeds goes beyond all of theirs and all of its form and its function. And friends, this is a righteousness that you do not have and you cannot get it on your own. So who is a Christian? Is a Christian somebody who reads the Sermon on the Mount and comes and listens to all the sermons that I preached on it and writes down all of the sermon notes and 
gets that all figured out and then goes out there and lives by it. Who is it that is truly fit for the kingdom of God? Now, for 30 weeks, we've been tackling those questions. We've got two more chapters to go in which we're going to deal with it some more. But let me answer the main point for you today. Who is really a Christian? Who is truly a Christian? A Christian is one who knows that he can't keep the Sermon on the Mount. You see what a religious person will do? He'll read the sermon and he'll go out and he'll do exactly what the Pharisees did. He'll go out there and try to find that list of rules that he can live by and he'll be so busy trying to stick to a formula and keeping all of those rules. But a Christian knows that he can't keep the rules. The standard is God's perfection and he's never going to be able to reach it. So what does he do? Well, he goes to the treasure house of God's supply. And there he finds all of the righteousness that he needs. There he comes and he puts all of his hope and his confidence in what Christ did and nothing in what he does. And so he trusts Christ for the forgiveness of his sins. He believes that Jesus Christ died and his blood was shed to wash away all of his sins, something that he can never accomplish on his own. His good works will never be enough to help him. So he doesn't talk about what I've done for God and all the things I'm trying to do and all the sacraments that I've kept and my baptism and my communion and my good things that I do. He simply comes to the cross of Jesus Christ and he humbly bows himself there and says, God, do for me what I cannot do for myself. And that's where we receive the righteousness that exceeds that Jesus is talking about. All of this, all of this, all of those examples and all the sermons that can be preached on it boils down to that one thing. You must be perfect even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. And the only way that you're going to ever get there is through the blood of Jesus Christ. Now when you realize this and you put your faith in Christ, then you do exactly what the Apostle Paul said. He said, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live... Not I, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In these messages, I've been asking, what is the gospel according to you? The biggest obstacle in the way of Christianity is not the devil. The biggest obstacle is not atheists and agnostics. The biggest obstacles to Christ's gospel is not Islam. It's not communist. It's not even the big bad wolf. The biggest obstacle in the way of Christianity is Christians. It's Christians who will not live out the faith of their profession. You see, most people don't go to church. Most people never pick up a Bible to read it. And so the only gospel that they're ever reading is you. They're looking at your life and they're getting a snapshot of Jesus Christ. And the question is, what is that gospel according to you? What are they reading in your life that tells them something about Jesus? I hope for everyone here today that you can say with Paul, the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That is the way in which your life speaks the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you need to consider today, What does my life say about the gospel? What is the gospel according to you? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we bow our heads before you in this time, 
We have to look at ourselves and we see that there's nothing good in us. There's nothing that we deserve, not the mercy, not the grace that you have bestowed upon us. We're sinners against you and the proof is shown over and over again in your word with so many examples that Jesus has given. And just like he could have pulled out a thousand examples more of how that we've fallen short or they had fallen short, so we could do the same. Every day we fall short of your perfection. So, Lord, we know that we can't obtain this on our own. There's nothing we can do. There's no way that we can be saved and no way we can live in your kingdom unless you should give us the righteousness that you require. And we thank you, Lord, for this, that when you died for us and when we trust in you and we receive this righteousness, that our Heavenly Father no longer sees us, but he sees Jesus Christ. And that is the righteousness that satisfies. So I pray, Lord, that you would speak to some heart today and help them to realize that they can't count on themselves. They've been struggling all of this time trying to be good, trying to do good things, trying to be acceptable. And as long as they live and as hard as they try, they will never be acceptable in your sight. The only righteousness that justifies is that of Jesus Christ. So I pray, Lord, you'd speak to some sinner today. Help them to put their hope and their confidence in you. And Lord, as we close out this service today, I pray that you might direct anyone who wants to know more about this to our people who will be here to talk with them about their salvation and understand what it means to be in the kingdom of God. And so, Lord, I just pray that you'd speak to hearts today. Use this time that we sing to convict our hearts of how we've fallen so short of the glory of God. And we give you the praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.